0: The New Level Cap Podcast is a show about fun, friends, game design, and all things otherwise. Your hosts are Marco de Santos and Brad Talton of Level 99 Games. I'm Chris Solis, your producer, and without further ado, please enjoy the show. Why, hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of the New Level Cap Podcast. I'm your host, Marco DeSantos, also known as Mechanic Critic, and I'm here with a very special guest, and that special guest Is you, dear listener, because this is gonna be another one of those one-on-one sessions where I kinda help you better understand one of our games. So, in the previous episode of one of these, I talked about game design and how to design a character for Battlecon or Exceed. However, for this episode, I've wanted to make a guide for something in Exceed that I feel like not a lot of people are taking advantage of. So, here's my guide to being very aggressive while maintaining card economy in Exceed. Or, you could call it, The Aggressive Player's Guide to Card Economy. Now, many of you might be wondering, Okay Marco, we know you're the Battlecon project lead, but what gives you the right Nay, the audacity to be able to talk about Exceed in such a manner. Well, nothing really. I'm a big Exceed fan as well. Um, you know, I've played a lot of Exceed, maybe nearing two hundred games at this point. Definitely over a hundred at the very least. And I've developed a certain Exceed playstyle that's very different from my Battlecon playstyle. Many people will know me for playing the quote-unquote Marcocon, or you know, you play safe attacks until you don't. However, Exceed is kind of a bit of a different game for me. Since I played a lot of Battlecon, I have learned to do a lot of things in Battlecon, right? Since in Battlecon, every turn you have to attack the opponent, you have to be able to do multiple things with one action. Say, you want to reposition, but you can't just spend the entire turn repositioning unless you're dodging, right? You have to reposition and attack and set up and do all of these other things, All by playing one attack pair This is a very important skill for Battlecon And I realize that it's kinda seeped into my way of playing Exceed Because now I try to find ways to do multiple things with one action in Exceed Despite the fact that there are infinitely more actions that you can take in Exceed than in Battlecon And as just kind of maybe my hidden desire to still play Battlecon while I play Exceed I end up striking a lot And this has developed a certain playstyle wherein I am very, very, very much an aggressive player. Um, I think, based in the community, or at least on our Discord, the only player who's more aggressive than me is probably Reggie. And Reggie might not even play as aggressive as me depending on the characters we decide to choose. Regardless, when it comes to aggression, Reggie and I are probably paramounts, at least for the community Discord. And it's very interesting to see how... People like us, like players like us, handle card economy, especially when compared to other people who play slower games. Not to say that these people are worse than us or are bad or whatever. It's just that we have very different play styles and there are very different things that go into our thought processes and very different things that we value. So, here's the list of things and list of short actions that I can recommend you using if you want to be more aggressive with your game plan while still maintaining your card advantage or at least some of your card economy. Number 1. Strike. This sounds really simple, right? Like, I kind of mentioned it already earlier. In Exceed, striking is often looked at by players as just the thing you do to deal damage to the opponent every action or everything my attack does is simply a means to either beat my opponent's attack or deal more damage to my opponent or mitigate the effect of my opponent's attack. So when people look at cards, they go, oh yes, I will play grasp and melee so that I can push the opponent out in case they have an attack with range one. I will play cross because if I hit the opponent or if the opponent is slower than me, I get to retreat out of the way and dodge their sweep. All of these things are good, and they're not bad per se. However, there's a lot of things that people who only look at strikes in this manner are missing out on. A lot of people will not look at striking as a way to maintain card economy, or as a way to maintain card advantage. However, people also boost for the same exact reasons. For example, let's look at a boost like Run. Run is the boost on Cross, and it allows you to advance up to 3 spaces. For most characters that want to even boost this attack, they would, for all intents and purposes, advance that entire 3 spaces so that they get to range 1. Now, that's very good, because in Exceed, if you wanted to advance 3 spaces, you would usually have to take the move action and spend 3 force in order to get to that melee range you so desire. Or, for any of you battle guides fans out there, the range you so desperately need. And that's good, right? Because instead of spending three cards to do the effect, you spend one card, which is the boost run, to perform the same effect. Now, let's look at this another way. Dive is an attack that has before advance three on it. So if you strike with dive, you will advance three. Is this not very similar? to spending your run boost in order to advance those 3 spaces. Now I know I know it's not the same thing, right? Your opponent could play a faster attack that stuns out your dive. Your opponent could for all intents and purposes, play a sweep and then you trade badly. All of these things are true, but it does not invalidate the fact that Dive is a card, one card, that advances you three spaces, much in the similar way that Boosting Run advances you three spaces. This is something that many people tend to forego and tend to forget, especially when they're at ranges where their attacks won't hit. A character at range six can't hit with Dive unless they're weird like Cammy or whatever. But that doesn't make Dive a bad play at range 6. In fact, you could probably play Dive at range 6 in order to advance those three spaces. Now, in this kind of situation, I would even argue that Dive is better than playing the run. Now, here's the example, right? Let's say that I boost run at range 6 to get to range 3. I draw a card, that's the end of it. Good, right? I spent, quote-unquote, one card and then drew another card to advance three. Not bad. However, aggressive players don't necessarily want more cards in their hand, right? Because in Exceed, having lots of cards in your hand isn't bad. But if all of those cards are not useful for you in your current situation, then it's as good as having nothing in your hand. Because it's all about how good your cards are for your situation. So, even if I spend a lot of time drawing cards, or even if I have 10 cards in my hand, if all of them don't hit at this range, or all of them are bad, then I might as well have zero cards in my hand, right? So, you could advance three with that run boost. Absolutely fine. However, if you strike with a dive, your opponent could defend with one of their hand cards, and this is. Really powerful because it's similar to that boost, right? Because you're able to get in and close that gap, but instead of drawing a card for the end of your turn, you don't because you struck, your opponent technically, quote-unquote, discards a card. That's very powerful, And people tend to underestimate this a lot, and people tend to go like, oh, but they'll hit me and I'll take damage. Yes, but here's a very important thing to understand. When you're playing very aggressively, there's a reason why you would want to play dive at that range. You want to get in close because you know that your cards are going to be better than your opponents on average at that range. So it's okay To give up like 5 to 6 life now in order to get in close. Because most likely what's going to happen is your opponent's going to eat 9 to 10 damage as a result of you just beating out all of their attacks for the next few strikes. This is very important to remember. This is the bread and butter for the aggressive character. You can perform a lot of effects that don't necessarily result in you dealing damage during the strike that still help you in the long run. Whether it's because you are able to reposition by playing assaults and dives outside of their effective ranges, or even if it's just playing a focus at a long range just to draw a card and have some armor. All of these things are good ways to maintain card economy, while forcing your opponent to either answer with an attack from their hand, or Wild Swing, which might result in them catastrophically losing a powerful Ultra, or playing one of their most powerful cards at a range that doesn't work. All of these are very good things. Plus, if you actually end up hitting the opponent, you get Gage. Which brings us to point number two. Change cards. Changing cards is really good. People do not use it often enough. And I kind of understand why. Aggressive players tend to strike a lot because they're aggressive. That makes sense. And you end up having a lot of gauge. So sometimes you end up having four, five gauge. But an empty hand because you've been striking basically every turn that you get. And here's where the big mistake that I think most people do happens. They go, strike, 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 strike. They see that they have only one to two cards left in their hand, and their opponent has six. They're terrified, and they go, all right, I prepare. This is a mistake. Now, I understand why people would do this, right? I don't have cards in my hand. I don't feel confident striking into my opponent's hand anymore because they have more options than me. They can probably do EXs. All of these things are true, so I'll prepare. But here's the big problem with preparing. Preparing is just drawing one card. And drawing one card is not bad, right? Okay, let me dissuade any of the commenters right now. When you prepare, yes, you technically draw two cards because you draw one for the prepare action and draw one for the end of your turn. But you, if you could have taken any other action, you still draw that one card for the end of your turn. So in all, for all intents and purposes, preparing is just one extra card. Going from one card in hand to three cards in hand is good. But if you're facing down an opponent with six cards, it doesn't mean anything, right? Like, you're, you're still in a losing position, and you've given your opponent the turn, right? By preparing, you have not only progressed your game plan to a minuscule degree, to a degree that doesn't actually matter, your opponent now can strike into you. With their entire hand of six cards that you were scared of because of their EXs and whatever. And if you think EXs are strong on defense, holy heck, they are also powerful on offense. EX sweeps start beating spikes. EX sweeps start beating other sweeps, right? All of these things are good on defense, right? But they're even more powerful on offense because they get the speed tiebreaker, right? So... All of these things are just really terrifying And by preparing when you have a low hand and a ton of gauge All you've done is give your opponent a chance to ruin your life So, change cards Spend that gauge And just draw more cards in one turn This way, say if you have that four gauge and only that one card in your hand If you spend all of that gauge to draw cards You will have seven cards in your hand to your opponent's six Bring you around even. And that's really, really good because assuming that you've hit all of those attacks legitimately and you didn't cheat them into your gauge, you've hit your opponent four times, which on average amounts to 16 to 20 damage, and now you still have seven cards, all of which could probably kill them in three strikes. That's very, very powerful, right? Now, I understand why people wouldn't want to do this. There's two big reasons, and probably two very legitimate reasons as to why they wouldn't want to do these things. Number one, exceeds exist. Not the game, but the exceed action so that you can flip your character to its exceed side. And number two, ultras exist. All of these are very valid points. Depending on the character... Indeed, I might not want to change cards depending on the character that I have For example, if I'm playing Ryu and I'm down to one card but I have 3 gauge or 4 gauge in my meter I probably wouldn't want to change cards as Ryu because I want to be able to keep the threat of Metsu Yukin alive Or if I'm Ken, for example, I have 4 gauge I want to be able to play Shin Ryuken and besides, I'm Ken So my unique ability lets me prepare and close a space anyway So my card economy is not really that bad Yes, this is a very character dependent thing But here's a few points that I wanna reiterate Number one, in terms of using your Ultras It really depends on the quality of your Ultras And it really depends on whether or not you have your Ultras in your hand Because here's the big deal. Ultras are very powerful, but they're also very predictable, and they also usually have very precise ranges in which they are very strong. And if you don't have a big hand of threats, and the Ultra's your only threat, people can just play block slash focus, and then your Ultra does nothing, you hit the opponent, have spent 4 gauge, and now your hand is empty, and you're doing nothing of big note. You know what I mean? It's, it's very good to be able to shoot your Ultra off, but an Ultra is only as good as the cards that are supporting it. Only as good as your ability to threaten post-Ultra, unless that Ultra literally kills the opponent. Number two, Exceed modes. Exceed modes are very, very strong, don't get me wrong. A lot of Exceed modes basically define a character in all of their entirety. Talking about you, Zolt. However, Exceed modes are a long-term thing. Right, As an aggressive player And if we're talking about this scenario Where you've hit 4 attacks You have hit 4 attacks And dealt ballpark 16-20 to damage to your opponent Your opponent is at 10, maybe 14 life If you exceed right now You're going to pass the turn to the opponent Then it goes back to you And at that point in time Does your exceed win you the game? Or would you have been better off, say changing cards for four, drawing back up to five, six cards, and then having enough threats to be able to strike your opponent twice and just kill them. It's very important to understand that exceeding is very powerful, yes, but it's not always the correct move. Not every character will want to exceed immediately when they have the gauge. And it's very, very true that if your opponent is at certain life thresholds, say like 10 or 11, You might not even want to exceed to begin with because the amount of advantage that you gain from your exceed mode is usually best when you have a lot of game left. But if you've been very aggressive at the start and you've hit all of your attacks, then the game's almost over. So why spend the gauge on that as opposed to, say, changing cards or maybe even playing an ultra that could kill the opponent? All of these things are very important to consider. And please, please, please consider changing cards. Do not be afraid to spend your gauge on changing cards because it's just a freehand refill, right? Because you got the full value of those cards. You were able to hit the opponent, deal damage to them, and based on point number one, you were able to either close the gap, create the gap, reposition for the next turn, etc., etc., etc. All of these things happened and you still have the card in your gauge, which then converts into more card economy by just changing cards. So, if you're an aggressive player, I highly recommend Changing cards after your big salvo of initial attacks In order to refuel and keep the pressure on Now, I would like to move on to steps 3 to 5 after the break Because they're all kind of related So, Marco, take us to the break The Exceed Shovel Knight bundle is still available for pre-order Get all of the characters and a special playmat by ordering the bundle now, and don't forget that very, very nice and shiny discount. We've also just announced Fight from a robot named Fight, and The Beheaded from Dead Cells as bonus fighters for this season, so you might want to include them in your pre-order as well. So, pre-order now if you're digging these deals! And I'm back. It's kind of weird to kind of throw the break to myself, but regardless, I'm back. Hopefully, you're all enjoying my new guide slash talk show thing uh, for the aggro player connoisseur. (laughs) Well, regardless, if you're liking this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend Consider giving us a comment, or if you're watching this on YouTube, give us a like, subscribe to the channel, or just share it with a friend. And again, if you hate it, share it with an enemy. However, the enemy right now is the opponent in Exceed, and we have to find some ways to get more card economy, especially against those slow players. So, aggro players, my friends, what can we do? Well, let's move on to number three. Let's start talking about wild swings. And this is going to be really weird because points three, four, and five are all about wild swings. And I'm going to dedicate the second half of the video entirely to wild swings because people are not using it enough. There's already a guide on BGG called You're Not Wild Swinging Enough. And it's absolutely true. And I want to just echo that guide because... Oh my gosh, do people not wild swing enough? I am not sure whether this is because it's a holdout from card games or other games, but people tend to be very averse to wild swinging. And I, I understand, right? Wild swinging, for people who don't know, is the ability to strike with the top card of your deck instead of with a card in your hand. This essentially means that you're quote-unquote button mashing, and you're just playing a random card from your deck. However, that random card play is very, very powerful for a multitude of reasons Which I'll get into right now Wild swing on defense Now, this is a very simple concept to understand, but I'll I'll try to spell it out for everyone, okay? Not to be condescending or whatever, but this is a guide So I, I wanna explain why it's so good to wild swing on defense A lot of characters, or a lot of players tend to want to defend with very above curve cards, right? This is why attacks like Cross, this is why attacks like um, Ryu's Shoryuken, for example, are quite powerful in the public eye. Uh, Speaking of eyes, eyes, such as the Evil Eye from uh, Zolt and Tornulus, are all very above-curved cards at their ranges, which means that they're really good to defend with because if your opponent, say, attempts to cross against you... At range 2, you can defend with Ryu Shoryuken, which is speed 7, and then stun them out of their cross. This is a very powerful interaction because your opponent initiates a strike, loses the strike, and then now it's your turn and you can strike into them at a range they supposedly don't want to be at because they tried crossing out. This is a very, very, very powerful thing. And I understand why people wouldn't want to just randomly leave their defense up to fate, Right? I would much rather play a sweep or a focus if I'm trying to be safe But here's the big deal Sometimes you just don't have those cards in your hand You want to defend with sweep or focus What if they're not in your hand? Sometimes they're in your deck And this is a concept that's been very popular around the community Where we say, if the answer's not in your hand It's in your deck, wild swing And this is not a bad adage to live by If you're to think about wild swinging, it essentially allows you to draw a card as you strike. And this is a very powerful thing because drawing a card is card economy, right? But it's also about maintaining your current hand. A lot of cards and characters' kits are very powerful on offense or when they're initiating, but very weak on defense or when they're being initiated on. So in essence... There's a natural disadvantage to being the defender. A lot of your attacks, unless they're very defensive or guardy, means that a lot of your attacks are just invalid by nature of your opponent's stats. If they just have more stats than you, 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 you fizzle, right? Why would you say the opponent plays and strikes?" And you go, "Hmm, none of the cards in my hand are very good at defense. Say your hand is filled with dives and assaults. And you go, "Huh, ah, I'll play the assault." Why would you willingly choose to discard a card? Because that's what you're doing. Why are you willingly choosing to discard a card at this range, at this time, just to lose the strike anyway? People feel good about knowing what their attack's gonna be. So they're like, okay, so even if this might lose me the attack, at least I know that it can beat something. But the same thing applies to literally any random attack in your deck. They can all beat something right? But the thing about wild swinging is it doesn't cost you a card in your hand and it can sometimes win anyway. And that's the beauty of the wild swing on defense. Your opponent dedicated a card in their hand to perform this attack. You dedicate a nothing from your hand and just wild swing in response. More often than not, Unless the cards in your hand are so good at defense that you're confident in them, more often than not, the quality of the card you wild swing is going to be as good, if not better, than anything you could have defended with in your hand. And this is very, very important for the aggro player, because not only do you often have little to no hand, because you're currently striking every turn and not prepping or drawing cards, but also for... Aggressive characters have lots of cards in their hand. Why wouldn't they willingly spend cards in their hand that they could be using for their offense to either fuel force for effects or perform EX attacks or chain advantage or just strike into their opponent continuously with winning attacks? Why would they willingly choose to get rid of those good cards when they could just sack a card from the top of their deck? A very important thing to understand is that losing a strike is often just losing life. Right? And that's true for the aggro player as well. Losing a strike is just losing life. And if you're playing ag- aggressive and you have an aggressive character and you've been playing aggressive correctly, oftentimes you're going to win more strikes than your opponent on average, so long as you're initiating. And this usually means that you have a life lead on your opponent. Life is a resource. And a lot of card games say this, you know, life is a resource, spend it, blah, blah, blah. In Exceed, that's true as well. And wild swinging on defense is a way to convert your life into a resource. So these all contribute to the fact that you might want to consider wild swinging on defense. And it might not seem like a lot right now, right? It might say, yeah, it's just one card. You don't go down one card. But people literally spend an entire turn preparing. And you know what preparing is? One card. So if you think preparing is a good action to take And spend your entire turn doing If you wild swing on defense That's you using your opponent's turn To essentially save a card That's amazing And do not underestimate it Alright, so let's move on to point number 4 And this won't be as long as point number 3 Because I've kind of explained a lot of what makes point number 3 good And they all kind of apply to point number 4 Wild swing on offense too (laughs) Now this is a bit more of a nuanced thing and this isn't, this isn't as ubiquitous as wild swinging on defense because again, if you're on offense and you're the aggressive player, you have uh, incentive to strike with the cards in your hand that you know are good on offense. But there are reasons to wild swing on offense. Biggest one is that you have no cards in your hand. Now, people are going, wait, did you just tell us to change cards in point number two? Yes. But point number four is saying that change cards isn't your only option. This is where card counting becomes very useful. And as an aggressive player, I highly recommend you learn how to card count. Um, because more so than any other playstyle or any other character in the game, what cards are in your deck and what cards are in your hand matter significantly more for you than for your opponent. Why? It's the simple case of how many cards you get to see. As an aggressive player, you're hardly taking the prepare action. You usually have a character that doesn't have cards that say, draw five cards on them, right? And you usually have a character that doesn't have a lot of very good draw effects, essentially incentivizing you to keep attacking. And this usually means that you'll end up having little to no cards left in your hand. But... You can always change cards to get those cards back And that's perfectly fine But the point here is That a defensive character who has a lot of draw effects Gets to see more of their deck Than the average aggressive character So on average I would say that an aggressive character Would see around 15 to 20 cards of their deck But the you know slower player will on average See 20 to 25 cards of their deck Maybe even 30 because they end up reshuffling This is very, very important because it means that you don't have as much luxury of choice when it comes to what cards you're attacking with or defending with as the aggressive character. But this isn't necessarily a bad thing because aggressive characters, or at least characters that reward aggression, also tend to be characters that have attacks that just quote-unquote, just work. Defensive characters tend to have cards that are really good when they meet the specific attack that they're meant to counter. But aggressive characters just have, you know, attacks that are better assaults or better sweeps, or this attack just kind of works so long as you're at range 1 when you hit it, right? And this means that aggressive characters are very, very good at wild swinging on offense and on defense, And on offense, if you have an empty hand, it's okay to change cards. It's actually very good. However, sometimes that turn you take off to change cards gives the opponent the chance to retaliate with their own powerful attack or reposition themselves to no longer be in your threat zone. The biggest example of this would be you cornering the opponent. And a cornered opponent is very, very weak. However... If you change cards, you pass the turn to the opponent, they play the run boost and now they're not in the corner anymore. And then all of your attacks that were hitting at range 1, range 2 are no longer hitting them anymore because they're at range 3 because they ran and advanced 3 spaces past you. You can see where this has gone terribly wrong. So, in such a situation, rather than changing cards, might I recommend just wild swinging instead. On average, if you are playing an aggressive character, and if you are the aggressor, the aggressive player, you have not only probably completely beaten the opponent's regular bad attacks that don't really work as well on offense as yours, but it's also very likely that you pull one of your powerful ultras off the wild swing, and then just kill them, right? And... You're saying, Marco, but what if my powerful ultra doesn't work in this situation? Well, because you wild swung it off the top, you can then invalidate that and then just play the next top card of your deck, giving you a choice. It's very, very good to do this. Not giving your opponents time is the aggro aggressive hallmark. So, wild swing, it's literally a free card. And on average, you're probably gonna win or at least trade with the opponent. And if the opponent's at 5 life, a trade is death for them. So consider that next time you are aggressing on your opponent. Point number five, this is gonna be the simplest one, but also something that I feel like people don't really do that often. I call it the poor man's tech. So the big thing about defensive characters is that they're usually really good at boosting they tend to want to play boosts uh, that either increase their speed or increase their defenses so that when the aggressive character tries to attack into them, the aggressive character has to either think twice or do a different strategy. The simplest example of this is if any defensive character boosts sweep, all of their attacks go from easy to beat to kind of probably impossible to beat for the average aggressive character. Because now their uh, crosses are going at 8th priority and unless you EX grasp them, which is very unlikely, you're not going to be able to stop them from crossing on defense. But here's the big, big thing. A lot of people see the opponent play the, s- the light to increase their speed by two. Then it becomes the aggressive player's turn. And then they go, huh, I can't stop that cross from happening. In fact, none of my aggressive attacks kind of work in this situation because my opponent's going to be faster than most of them. I am scared. I don't know what to do. I prep because I need more cards. Wrong. Wrong. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That's wrong. In almost all situations, doing that is wrong. And here's why. If somebody boosts light and then passes the turn to you, if they are a good player, you have lost that strike already. You are not winning it. No matter how many cards you draw, again, point number one, it doesn't matter if you have so many cards in your hand, if none of them help you win the strike. And there's almost nothing that can beat an 8-speed cross, right? Unless you exactly draw EX Grasp, which doesn't even help you because you've spent your turn preparing and therefore it's your opponent's turn. So if they cross now, they have Initiator's Advantage. They break the speed tie with your EX Grasp and you still lose it's crazy i know but that's that's oftentimes the case and this is why tech the boost on dive is very powerful because it basically allows you to say no i don't want to deal with your boost anymore it's very powerful and i don't want to deal with it and again that's very good but you don't always have tech in your hand so what do you do well most people what they do is they draw cards pass the turn to the opponent and then they lose the game. Because not only does the opponent either strike with their cross immediately, the opponent could just lay down a second boost that will make your day even worse, right? So what if they boost light? Okay, I'll prep. Your turn. I boost fierce. And then you, you sweat. You, you break into a cold sweat because you realize, oh no, their attack now has plus two power and plus two speed. And I have done nothing to be able to defend against that. Because I just drew cards. <laughs> you want attack. But you don't have tech. What do you do? You poor man's tech. Poor man's teching is a community term for simply striking. That's it. You just you just strike. Now, there's multiple ways to poor man's tech, right? So there's the there's the natural progression of if your opponent plays a boost like light to increase their speed, rather than playing your own light to counteract the speed, you most likely will be better off just playing your sweep as an actual attack, forcing them to play their whatever, right? Their cross or whatever. This is a kind of poor man's stack that's very powerful, especially if you know that you can confirm your hit. Because your opponent's boost technically becomes useless because you played an attack that doesn't care about what their boost does. So that's good. And they wasted a card in their hand to defend. Or they wild swung or whatever. Regardless, you kind of win that thing. Now, here's the other side of poor man's stacking. Uh, sometimes you don't have a card that's good to defend with or a card that's good to initiate into that boost. Say they have plus two power and all of your cards are slow cards with only guard four. Or say they have plus two speed and all of your cards are assaults and dives. None of them are going to win. So wild swing. But I want to explain one big thing. Is that people will go, but Marco, that's just accepting that you're going to lose that strike. And I'm here to tell you that that's exactly what it is because as i've said earlier in this point if the opponent is a good player and they're playing a good defensive character and they've decided to do that boost you've already lost the strike you just don't see it yet because it's not as obvious as ken playing something like ex shin ryuken at range one and then hitting you for 15 but you have already lost that strike Because the defensive character has now exerted enough defensive pressure against you that you're so scared to strike into them. And you know what the defensive character wants more than anything? Time. And that's what you've just given them by not striking into them. Time is what they wanted. Time is what they need to draw all their cards and get the correct setups and get their positioning and get everything they want. Time. And that's what you're giving them by not striking into them. So you're thinking, But I'll lose this strike. But you were losing it anyway. In fact, if you just wild swing and poor man peck the boost immediately, what's the worst thing that can happen? You eat a spike, you eat a, you eat a sweep or whatever, and you take six points of damage. That is a trade I will take almost all the time, over passing the turn to my opponent, then them just boosting or repositioning or drawing more cards. All of these things are way worth just eating that 6 damage. And remember, like I explained in points number 3 and 4, you don't, Always lose. Sometimes you'll pull a card that just magically wins you the attack anyway. So what if your opponent played a light and then decided to defend with their spike to beat almost all of your defensive options? If you just wild swing an assault, you win that attack. Your opponent has invested so much into something, you invest literally nothing and you won the attack. That's a big swing in your favor. And something that will never happen if you just draw cards and pass your turn to the opponent. So, poor man's tech. Wild swing, it's good. And as much as I would love to keep talking about aggressive strategies, it's your turn to talk to me. Do you agree with what I say in this guide? Do you have other aggressive economy strategies that I didn't cover? Well, please tell me in the comments section down below. If you have some constructive criticism, I'm willing to hear them as well. And of course, if you're confused by any of my points, I will answer any questions you might have because helping you helps me. Now, if you like this video and you enjoyed this content, please consider giving us a like or a subscription if you're watching this on YouTube and make sure to always give us some comments because that helps us with the metrics and it makes it so that more people get to see this content. Now, if you're listening to this on a podcasting app, I highly recommend giving us a review wherever you're listening to us to, whether it's Spotify or iTunes. And of course, if you love this video, Or this podcast, share it with a friend. And if you hate it, but somehow are still listening to it, share it with your closest enemy. As usual, it's been me, your host, Marco DeSantos, also known as Mechanic Critic. And with me has been you, my wonderful listener. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Level Cap Podcast. Don't forget to change cards. And thank you, World of Exceed. Thank you, and good night. The New Level Cap Podcast is produced by Level99 Games. Join us next Wednesday for more design talk and shenanigans. Thank you for listening.